Number 275 was invited for each of us to mark that. We're happy to do that. As Brother Jonathan has led us in these songs, reminding us of the urgency and the blessedness of following the Savior. What a sweet thing it is that words like that can emanate from our lips. It is good that we've been able to assemble tonight, this afternoon, after a day in which God has looked down upon us in such tender and marvelous mercy. As you might have noted in the bulletin, as well as the wall to my left, we continue this evening with a series of studies we began last Lord's Day evening. It, in fact, attempts to pull together, to tie together, if you will, some paramount descriptions of the Holy Word of God, together with what scientific matters that relate to physics might be found in it. And our discussion last week brought us to at least consider some of these things by way of review. We did learn about the value that our society places upon science, urging our students not only to take it but to master it, and, all, and often to do so through a number of years of study. Beyond that, we also came to appreciate that by its nature, physics is the most fundamental of the sciences, highlighting the basic interactions of matter and energy. And in its attempt to do that, finding its application and really in every other branch of recognized science, we did see most impressively that the paramount subject, though in all of this, was the Word of God. Science, be it physics or any of the other particular disciplines, if they're done properly, must never contradict the Bible. For the Bible is the absolute truth. It presents, no matter what subject it touches, the things that are absolute as presented and declared by God Himself. Thus, what science declares that opposes the Bible, we can rest assured that those theories of man are incorrect, and those presentations of man are lacking in at least one, if not many ways. Perhaps one of the final things we saw was that misguided approach then that so often seems to be taken by those in the scientific community and by those who attempt to support and advocate it. As we continue this series this evening, we tonight will look at a few of the things and we'll continue this if my plan holds true next Sunday evening. But tonight might we at least take a look at a few of the physics things that the Bible does mention. And I think it entirely fair to begin that by doing so in the following way the topic of scientific foreknowledge. For quite some time, this has been extraordinarily impressive to me. When you pause to realize that science, through careful and meticulous experimentation, quite often over decades, if not centuries, seeks to learn what is the truth about the natural world about us, is it not astounding when the Bible recorded that truth millennia ago, Surely that has to indicate, doesn't it, that there was by far a higher power at work in the authoring, the presentation of, the preservation of, and of course that which is the sacred Word of God. And so with that in mind, what, why don't we think for just a few moments about the nature of prophecy as at least a way of pinpointing the nature of this matter before us. After all, when you and I come to the Word of God, it is still true that one of the most powerful matters that might be listed as proof that it is not just a, a book authored by man, but rather authored by God, is the character of prophecies that are predictive in nature. We know the Old Testament is filled with prophecies. In fact, 17 books of prophecy 
are in fact housed in the Old Testament books, aren't they? Beginning all the way at Isaiah, continuing all the way to Malachi. We notice that those books of prophecy often directly assert the need for repentance from the people of that day. But every now and then, scattered across those 17 books and other books as well, we find mention made of things that were not to come to pass for perhaps decades, sometimes centuries, sometimes millennia. And when those things came to pass, not only when the inspired writer said, but with all the details related to when and where and the circumstances surrounding it, it can't help but be so convincing that we worship a God that has provided us with this book. It wasn't authored by men, no matter how scholarly they might be. They were privileged to write it down, but they were not the authors of what was there. I've listed just a few matters for your consideration. For instance, what about Micah 5 verse 2? There nestled amongst the statements of the minor prophet Micah, we find very clearly etched upon the scene of predictive prophecy the fact of where the Savior was to be born. Now at this point, might we pause and say, there are many in our world who now for centuries have said, well, Jesus artificially orchestrated things so that all those prophecies came to pass. Jesus had no control over where He was born. And yet, in Bethlehem of Judea was to be the place. And so it was, just as surely as Micah foretold it, that's where the Savior was born. And in fact, even Herod... In Matthew chapter 2, did he not inquire of those around him at the time? Where was he to be born? And they knew where because they had read Micah 5 verse 2. Perhaps as another example, highlighting again the powerful thrust of predictive prophecy, consider Malachi 3 verse 1. This prophecy concerned John the Baptist. And notice he was a bit older than Jesus and so the Lord had no opportunity to influence the nature of the coming of John the Baptist. He labored, in fact, as a forerunner to the Christ. He labored as one, a voice crying in the wilderness. And so it was, though, that was prophesied in Malachi 3. But it was also stated that in that same passage and in that same place, that when the one, the voice crying in the wilderness had come, then suddenly the priest, the king, if you please, would come to his temple we notice that Jesus, of course, came marvelously in His work not long after John appeared. Perhaps one final example, Psalm 22. This again takes us to that very crushing set of blows brought upon the Savior as His crucifixion come upon Him. We notice again now on this occasion, Jesus didn't tell those Roman soldiers what to do. And He did not tell those others on that occasion what to do to Him. But yet, David had written a thousand years earlier exactly what transpired in Matthew chapter 27. Notice again the power of predictive prophecy. You and I might ask it like this. If there was an individual upon earth today who wrote in fine detail events that were going to transpire a thousand years from now, what likelihood would there be that what that man wrote would have any semblance as to what would come to pass a thousand years from now. You and I know how difficult it is to write things that are going to be true tomorrow, much less next year or ten years from now or, yea, a millennium from now. But yet God has done it. 
And when you and I open the sacred pages of the Word of God, we can rest assured that every topic that's mentioned, be it these matters that relate to the Christ, or yea, as they relate to any other thing, they in fact are true. With that comment about predictive prophecy made, and with that thought about the authorship of the Bible set before us, let's move to our next point. When you and I think about some of the features of this planet, and might we say earth from our perspective is a fairly large place. It has the appearance of a giant ball resting here in space as it moves in its orb around the sun. You and I will find many of those matters though are mentioned in the Bible. For night, let's quit our appetite, if you will, by beginning our discussion with this. Mankind has observed almost from the very beginning the fact that the air seems to move. There are winds and sometimes they seem to prevail from the north. Depending on where you are upon earth, they may be predominantly from the east or from the west or from the south. That seemed awfully confusing and perhaps rightfully so. There was a tremendous breakthrough made by George Hadley early in the 18th century in which he presented a model. The so-called Hadley three-celled air circulation model. And our youngsters, at least in earth science classes, are usually asked to learn something about that. But I would ask you to simply note that in the character of that model, it basically has behind it the following idea. The air, as it moves its way around the surface of the planet, it completes various circuits. It rises in some places and moves basically horizontal and then descends and then moves horizontal again over the surface, completing what we would recognize as a loop, a circuit, a complete path. I would invite you to think with me for a moment about Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 6. And isn't it true that in the pages of the Holy Scriptures long, long before George Hadley ever figured that out, and long, long before any scientific balloons were able to take measurements to confirm it. The Bible, in fact, had made note that the wind, the air, if you please, surrounds and surrounds according to His circuit. Isn't that an interesting way of phrasing it? And that word circuit, you'll notice, means to be surrounded by, to be enclosed, or in other words, to have completed. It seems as etched in the words of the Holy Scriptures long ago, there's a very description that meshes completely and very harmoniously with this so-called three-cell model of George Hadley. It is a bit interesting that when you give thought to this matter of the winds in their circuit, I might suggest to you that that matter of wind is sufficiently intriguing that now we really do understand that not only was that a reasonable model, but meteorologists have extended that model in the years since George Hadley, but the idea behind it is still the same. The wind in the warmer regions of the planet, like near the equator, that air rises due to the increased warmth, and as it does so, it, com it makes air pockets that basically move vertically, upward. But as that air rises, it cools, and as it does so, the rotation of the earth proceeds to move it in a path that's horizontal. When it arrives at about 30 degrees north or south latitude, it proceeds to descend and fall. Again, the earth's rotation proceeds to move it in a path that makes it complete the circuit. An amazing system that God put in place, isn't it? 
As you think about the nature of the circulation of the air, however, you'll notice that's only one thing that might be mentioned. While we're on the subject of air, what about its weight? Isn't it true that air surely is light? It isn't as heavy as a car, you and I tend to think, but maybe we should reconsider that thought. The air does have a density, and it does therefore have a weight. You and I know that scientists didn't seem to have that idea firmly in mind until only relatively recently. I list for your consideration the work of Torricelli, Evangelista Torricelli, a rather famous Italian scientist. In fact, he was the one that invented the Torricelli barometer to measure the pressure of the air. And still to this day, on the nightly weather forecast, our meteorological friends quote to us the air pressure, the atmospheric pressure, using a barometer not unlike that which Torricelli invented. But when you and I give thought to the weight of the wind, Torricelli, as you can see, lived only relatively recently, 17th century. I wonder what the Bible might have had to say as far back as Job 28, verse 25. Arguably, the earliest of the Bible books to be written, at least descriptive of a time frame taking us back to the patriarchal era and time. And yet we find on this occasion that even the inspired writer made note of the weight of the air, the weight of the wind. I wonder, was it happenstance? Was it accidental? Or was there an author far greater than Job writing the book of Job? You and I know the answer to that so very clearly, don't we? But so far as we've given thought to the wind, to the characteristic of its weight, to the understanding that attaches to the circuits that it completes, might I ask you to think about snow. Youngsters like snow when it has schools canceled, I know. And sometimes you and I think about the beauty that attaches to snow. But have you ever thought about what science describes relative to snow? These are some thoughts I would invite for you to consider. It is now well recognized that by the process undergoing when snow was formed, every single flake is unique because the characteristics of temperature the characteristics of humidity and the characteristics of the local density of air all go in to make every single flake different because those characteristics differ ever so minutely from the location of one flake to the next. But yet, perhaps something like that was hinted at in Job 38 verse 22. When there, as the God of heaven, asked Job the very leading question, Job, hast thou considered the treasures of the snow? The treasures of the snow, that seems to suggest that God had in mind this powerful and potent question for Job. Job lived long before there were any microscopes and long before there was any optical equipment to closely protect and safeguard a snowflake while one studied it with scientific scrutiny. And yet God hinted that there were treasures considered in the formation and reality of snow. Now, you and I know today that that hints at things like crystallography and chemical bonding. Again, things which our youngsters are called upon to learn, and yet perhaps that or something like it is what God had in mind as He made note of the treasures of the snow. I would invite you to think with me 
that so far as we've talked about these things concerning snow, these issues concerning air, our task is nowhere near completed. Because in addition to that, might I ask you to think with me about the oceans. There is perhaps no region on the surface of earth or perhaps beneath its surface that is less understood than are the oceans. Although we have scanned small sections of them, might I ask you to think with you for just a moment about the ocean floor. These are some thoughts. There was a time when mankind felt as if the oceans were relatively shallow and furthermore that the base of the ocean was basically just a flat thing. Many thought that if you were only slightly taller, you literally could walk all the way across the ocean. Obviously, that thought has been long since dispelled. We now know the oceans are rather deep, and in some cases, there are great trenches at the base of them. And furthermore, we know that the base of the ocean, the ocean floor is not just a flat plain. It too is encumbered with topography like mountains and valleys, hills and swallows, and we recognize that it thus is much like what's up here on the surface. It's just that it's on the ocean floor. As you give thought to some of those things, I wonder what the Bible may have had to say about the actual characteristics of the ocean long before men were able to discover it. I've listed for you some considerations. In 2 Samuel twenty-two sixteen, Psalm 135, verse 6, and Jonah 2, verse 6, the following statements relative to the ocean floor are made. The channels of the sea. That word channel literally means ravine. And that highlights the fact that literally on the ocean floor, there are these rather massive and extensive trenches, sometimes extending for miles further downward from the actual base or bottom of the ocean. The most famous of all, I suppose, is in the Pacific Ocean, the Marianas Trench, the depth of which from the actual absolute surface of the water is well over eight miles down. For, interestingly, you'll notice deep places are mentioned. Again, highlighting the fact the ocean floor is not just a few feet below the surface. In some cases, the average depth is miles and miles downward. Finally, this word, mountains, again with respect to the ocean floor. Are there mountains on the floor of the ocean? There was no way to check that in Jonah's day. We now know there are. Many times various capsules, vessels if you please, have been sent and they have actually witnessed these mountains. They are there. I wonder how these Bible writers knew all of this. So long before there was any bathyscaphe, a device that could actually withstand the pressures and descend to the bottom of the ocean. We each in this auditorium know the answer to that. There was no scientist that figured it out. The God of heaven delivered that information to the inspired writers who so faithfully recorded it for you and me. That should be faith-building information. The book that we're reading, the Holy Bible, is in fact the Word of God. Beyond the ocean floor topography, another matter of intense interest, and at least it is something that is of great value to us as human beings on the surface, are those currents that exist in the ocean. 
We learned earlier in the lesson tonight about the Bible's mention of those currents that exist in the atmosphere. Air currents, the wind as you and I would call it. Are there also currents in the ocean? It was known from long, long ago that there were such currents. In fact, ocean-going people, the mariners, knew to use certain currents to get where they were going. Isn't it interesting, though, that still, ages and ages in the past, the Bible had something to say along the lines of Psalm 8, verse 8. In fact, it's an interesting story. Matthew Fontaine Murray himself, in reading Psalm 8, verse 8, he saw that there was actually a statement, a declaration from the God of heaven that there were these currents, these paths, as he would call them, in the sea. And he set out to find them. And many of them, of course, are now well-labeled and well-known, and students again in science are called upon to learn them. There is that most famous of them all, I suppose, the great Atlantic current known as the Gulf Stream. It carries those warm waters northward and in fact keeps England always at a rather temperate and moderate climate. The cause? The ocean currents. Those currents are so needful in that they distribute the heat capacity of the earth and they do so in a way that keeps it far more temperate than it would otherwise be. The fascinating thing about all of that is the Bible, of course, describes these paths of the sea back as far as Psalm 8, verse 8. When you think about these paths of the sea, these characteristics of the air, maybe in light of that which comes before us next, might we think about two other things related to the waters of earth. First of all, the springs of the deep. I mention that because, again, it would be fairly easy to question, how could mankind have learned about these? Consider this with me. We know that the oceans, by and large, are exceedingly salty, having a salinity on the order of some 23 parts per thousand. But as that salinity is present, it makes the water undrinkable. It makes it unusable, at least in that sense. But isn't it interesting that there are pockets of fresh water, springs of fresh water that come up out of the ocean. Wouldn't it be fascinating if the Bible mentioned that? And yet it does. In Job 38, verse 16, in the list of those questions that God asked of Job, He specifically asked Job, Job, have you considered the springs of the deep? At that point, again, in the distant recesses of history, Job was not a professional scientist, nor were there in that day, as you and I would term them, but yet God made mention that in the ocean, in a place recognized for its saltiness, there were freshwater springs. We now know and have located many of them around the coast of this earth. They are located in almost every one of the oceans. And as they are present, they often are the only source of water for some island-dwelling peoples. These fresh springs of water in the ocean, and yet... The God of heaven made note of them, again, as far back as Job 38. It would be fascinating indeed to give thought to the scientific foreknowledge presented and housed in the Word of God, wouldn't it? All of these things that we're studying tonight, in every part, those scientists have only learned of them and at least cataloged them recently. 
The Bible has written of them long, long ago. The book of Job, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most ancient of all the Old Testament books. And yet, look at what it has revealed. As you might give thought, there perhaps is another matter concerning water. I term it simply the hydrologic cycle. We now know, and much study is given with respect to it, how is it that water percolates and circulates its way around the earth? Our youngsters now, at least from an early age, are taught that there's rainfall. It makes its way through runoff, ultimately to the oceans, where there it evaporates from bodies of water, and the whole cycle repeats. There's another cycle in place. Is it not still a fascinating thing that every single element of the water cycle is mentioned in the Bible. There's the runoff to the oceans, the evaporation to form the clouds and the other matters of moisture in the atmosphere, and then there's the rainfall. Every one of them is mentioned. With specific emphasis, I would invite you to consider Jeremiah 10 verse 13. In the days of that prophet, we find the mighty man Jeremiah stated it in words phrased like this. Verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 10. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. And there's the mention made about the ascension and the process we would call evaporation. The nature of the ascension of those water elements, if you please, into the atmosphere to ultimately form the droplets that you and I will recognize as rain. But also, not only in Jeremiah, in Psalm 135, verse number 7, that very powerful psalm is one that we've already referenced once in the lesson this evening. But this time, the reference is very different. Psalm 135, verse number 7. We find on that occasion, it simply says, He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain, and He bringeth the wind out of His treasuries. There is a similar mention of that word vapors, and in the Hebrew, that word suggests this vapor-like substance that you and I would recognize as that which can ascend under the proper forces of evaporation. All of these features perhaps allow us to conclude in the following way. The human family, by virtue of scientific study, didn't quantify and understand thoroughly the hydrologic cycle until the 16th century. And only then the work of Bernard Polisi was one that only roughly sketched it. It really hadn't been thoroughly appreciated, I suppose, until likely the last century. And yet, look at what was in the Bible so, so many years ago. That passage in Psalms that we read, again, would have occurred roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born. Amazing what scientific foreknowledge is there. At this point in the lesson tonight, we've looked at the ocean and also the atmosphere and found that there are things relating to their accuracy that was written long ago in the Word of God. There are many other things in physics, though, that likely challenge our thinking. I wonder what else might be there. The next lesson that we'll take up next Sunday evening will turn our attention to the very small. What about atoms? 
I realize that Adams or something, again, our youngsters from an early age begin to wonder about. Does the Bible talk about what we would call atoms? What about the nucleus of an atom? What about energy available from an atom? Is there anything that might be learned? I would ask you to wait till next Sunday evening. We'll see if we can't discuss those matters because the Bible perhaps says more about that than we might otherwise think. For right now, as you come to the very next slide, let's bring our lesson to a conclusion with some of these observations. It would seem to me a valuable exercise to give thought to the scientific statements of the Bible because of the following truth. If it is found upon careful analysis that what the Bible says about science is true, and to so far, every one of those things that we've learned, likely at the time they were written, those people didn't fully appreciate it because they'd never seen the ocean floor. They had no barometer by which they could measure atmospheric pressure, but yet every one of those statements has come to pass, and every one of them is exactly, minutely, and perfectly correct. If the Bible is correct on those matters that we can check, then what should be our approach toward those things we cannot check? Like the existence of heaven. Not a one of us can go to heaven right now and come back and confirm that it exists. But if the Bible is correct in every way we can check it, then ought we not have the utmost of confidence in the correctness and in the accuracy of those things we cannot check? And if there is a heaven, what about hell? Sure enough, we must believe absolutely that what Jesus said about heaven and what He said about hell is absolutely right. There's those places do exist, and what it takes to get there is what the Bible reveals it to be. Tonight, what about your life and what about mine? All of these scientific statements have hopefully increased or encouraged our faith in the Word of God because it is accurate. Maybe your life hasn't been what it ought to be. Maybe though you have heard what the Bible says about certain kinds of behavior, you have allowed yourself to be guilty of it anyway. And thus you stand distanced from the love of God at this point. You are not in a safe condition. Things are not well with you. Why not make that right this very night? If you at one time were a faithful Christian, but you've wandered away from the fold of, of faithfulness, realize you aren't the first one to have done that. And in all likelihood, you won't be the last. There is a second law of pardon. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. The Lord is waiting with open arms, inviting you to come. If you will come and allow us to pray, of course, you having confessed those matters and repented of them, God has promised to forgive them. If you have never obeyed the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, there could never be a better night than this one. There could never be a better day than this one. How sweet it would be for you to pillow your head tonight knowing your sins have been forgiven knowing that you at this point are bound and destined for heaven. But that can only happen if you obey in faithfulness and in submissiveness. The gospel plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. John 8 verse 24. 
It demands that you repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. It requires that you confess the name of Jesus as your Savior in the language of Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And it demands that you be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. If we could help you in doing that tonight, what a joyous occasion for celebration for you it would be. And we'd be happy to assist in what way we can. If we can help you tonight, we would urge you to come and to delay no longer, but rather at once while together we stand and while we sing.